Children can be dismissed to the back to our volunteers for Children's Church. Those of you that remain can turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, continuing our, our short Advent series in the book of Colossians that looks at the preeminence of Christ, and today we see what flows from that for us, those of us who have been called to be His stewards. You're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. This is God's Word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the words of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we believe in your Holy Spirit. We believe in the promise of your word to not return void. I pray that your word would not return void this morning, that as it is preached, it would be received, and the Holy Spirit would work it into our hearts, that we might recognize the hope of glory that is Christ in us. In his name we pray. Amen. So, in this passage here, we have this word stewardship, which is not really a word we use in everyday life. You've probably heard it if you've been in the church before, but you don't talk about, well, at work, you know, my steward. We don't talk about having stewards in the workplace or at home. A steward is just someone who is in charge of something that they do not own. Many of you, technically speaking, are stewards. You've got responsibilities at work over equipment or, or processes or systems that you don't own. That's all that a steward is. And, and here we see in this passage that Paul refers to himself as being a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to him. We see that this comes on the heels of this, this section where he's just overflowing, speaking about the preeminence and the glory and the majesty of Christ who, from whom all things come, that, he, that in him all things hold together. And he calls himself here this, this minister according to this stewardship. And sometimes Paul talks about himself in a unique sense, as one untimely born, an apostle to the Gentiles, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's trying to, to highlight the difference between him and others. But here, he's, he's holding himself out as a typical example. This is 
what all believers should be. This, this minister is the, the same word where we get the word deacon from. It means servant. Some of your translations might even translate it, a servant according to the stewardship from God. And in this sense, this is all of us. We are all meant to be stewards of the gospel, this mystery that has been handed to us. And that is a, a high and a lofty calling. But there's good news here. Because we're going to see that the glory of Christ in us enables us to be good gospel stewards. The glory of Christ in us enables us to be good gospel stewards. But what does that look like? What does it mean to be a good gospel steward? The first thing we're going to see is, is the mission, the work of gospel stewardship. What does it look like to be a steward of the gospel. It's simply handling well what has been given to us. Handling well what has been given to us. This, this good news of the coming of Jesus to rescue his people from their sins and his promise to come again and the, the work of his Holy Spirit in them to handle this beautiful good news well. That means it's not our goals we're pursuing. It's not our methods we get to decide how best to do this. And it's not even for our benefit. And Paul says that, that he is rejoicing in his sufferings for your sake. That is the Colossians, the church. That this is for the benefit of them, of God's people. That this stewardship has been given to him. And he says here that, that he is making, excuse me, got a little lost here, that he is making the words of God fully known, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This idea is, is that, the, that you're taking all that God has revealed, not picking and choosing, well, I like this part, but not this part. Not, not deciding, well, I, I really want to emphasize this over here. But taking all that God has done, all that God has revealed, and applying it to all people. It's not necessarily to know it all. Sometimes we can confuse growing in knowledge of God with growing in maturity in Christ. And to be certain, we should grow in knowledge of God. But the idea here is not what, we, what knowledge we have, but what knowledge is made known. Our, the depth of the gospel is what expands, not our own intellect. The idea here is kind of like kids' crafts. My kids all the time, especially around holidays, the kids' craft gets sent home from school or daycare or something like that. And some of them are very cute, and it's, it's very clear the kid did this, and it's a mess, and it's adorable. And then there's other times where it's like, the kid did not do this. <laughs> the child did not make this craft. They stood there for a picture, and then the teacher cut it out and put it on something else pre-made and wrote their name on it. The kid had nothing to do with this. That's, that's kind of a negative example, but that's what we are doing with the gospel. We had nothing to do with this. We did not do any of the work. We are taking something that was done and presenting it to others that it may be fully known. And this happens in all of life. Notice that he says he, he does this with wisdom. 
This idea is, is not just his own wisdom. He does this in a discerning way, but he does this such that that wisdom is, is continued in his hearers. It's an all of life lived out thing, not just knowing, but, but doing. And notice he says that he, he's warning and teaching everyone. Warning and teaching everyone. He repeats that for emphasis because he wants to understand there is no one that the good news does not warn. And there is no one that the good news does not teach. That everyone needs to hear and be confronted by, but also be transformed by the good news of Jesus. Sometimes we take a different tact. We think, well, I really wish so-and-so was in church today because they could really hear this message. Or, I, I, man, this scripture is just what that person needs to hear because we know they need it. But, but we completely ignore the, the conviction and the, the weight of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts. The d- dynamic he describes here is, is similar to what he talks about in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture that is breathed out by God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's, it's correcting and it's teaching. It's encouraging, but it's also convicting that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's the same goal here. Where is this all going to? He says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal is is growth in Christ-likeness, to to become more and more in the image of Jesus, the Son of God. And in Christ there is very crucial. He's not just saying, hey, if you develop the habits perfectly and, and we get the right processes in and you join the right church programs, eventually you'll get there. This maturity only happens in Christ. It's only in him that we have any hope that we will be growing towards any type of goal that is worth pursuing. It's clinging to the promise of Christ because we recognize that the promise of Christ is Christ. It's not some future paradise. It's not some greater comfort to come. The promise of Christ is Christ. As one scholar put it, there is no maturing or perfecting other than that attained through trust and faithfulness to the Messiah. You're not going to grow and mature in Christ without Christ. It's, it's kind of like trying to do childbirth without the mother. I know there's some science that's trying to work that way now, but stick with me here. For now, I, I've been in the room for all three of my kids' births. Like the doctor, the nurse, there's different ways to do it. C-section, no C-section, anesthesia, no anesthesia, midwife, no midwife. Do all that. You can do all the kinds of different things. The one essential component is the mom. You can't do childbirth without her. You cannot mature in Christ without Christ. And Paul emphasizes this elsewhere because often his teachings or his warnings or his corrections correspond to the work of Christ. In Colossians 3, later on in this very book, he says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In Ephesians 5, he says, Walk in love. Why? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 
In Philippians 2, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though found in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Paul is pointing to Christ as the example and as the, the source of our growth, which is, is why he kind of culminates all that he's talking about by saying, him we proclaim. This is the, the core. This should be the, the motto of anyone who seeks to minister, whether in a professional capacity or just in the pews, in your neighborhood, in your household, in your workplace. Him we proclaim. There is no other savior. There is no other method. There is no other promise. There is no other means by which we can be saved and which we can be glorified except in Christ. If you have heard the gospel of Christ, if you have heard his good news, and if you trust in him, this is your calling. Whether it's a parent to a child to take this gospel you've received and pass it on. Whether it's a spouse to a spouse. Whether it's a church member to another church member. Sunday school teacher to Sunday school student. Sunday school student to Sunday school teacher. <laughs> discipleship partner to discipleship partner. Neighbor to neighbor. If you have received the good news, you are a steward who should minister by passing that on to others. And this isn't just evangelism either. We all need to hear the gospel again and again and apply to our specific circumstances wherever we are. And so it's all of our duty to take that gospel that we have received, to handle it well as good stewards, and to pass it on to others. Why do we do this? Beyond God is asking us to do this, what's the, the, the motivation for this gospel stewardship? And you see this in the middle of these verses where Paul starts talking about a mystery. And we hear the word mystery and we're like, what? A mystery? And we think of like a, a murder mystery or a mystery TV show or something like that where you don't know what's going to happen next. And in one sense, it is like that. It, it, it is something that, that was once secret but has now been revealed by God to his people. In that sense, it is very much like a Sherlock Holmes mystery in that Sherlock Holmes has been out for 150 years at this point. You could know how it happens if you wanted to. If you were reading it as it was coming out, you don't know what's going to happen. Who's this Moriarty guy? I don't know what's going to happen next. But, but at this point, all has been revealed. The secret is, is wide open. So too, the mystery of what God was doing in Christ at one point in history was concealed. You didn't know. But now, Paul is saying, it has all been laid bare. This mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This is a beautiful thing. And, and he's, he's using this word mystery for a specific reason because there were these cults and these heresies that had started to crop up in the church that said, well, yeah, Jesus is good. That's, that's all good. That's great stuff. But also what you really need is the secret knowledge. And I'm the only one that has it. And here's the secret knowledge. And we've got there's just the select group of us, the only ones that can know it. And Paul is using this word mystery as, as a double-edged sword to say, you think you got a secret? I know a secret that comes from the triune God from eternity past. 
that was hidden for generations. Talk about a secret. That is a profound secret. But also, your secret is sitting here with this small group of people. This secret has been revealed to all people to know the glory of Christ. And so, he's, you can see he's enamored with this mystery. That this culmination of all things that were revealed, that God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. The Gentiles? They didn't know anything about God. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This is the, the culmination of that prophecy, that promise that, that God made to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. But what is this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That, that Christ in all his glorious riches, as one pastor put it, is actually dwelling through his spirit in the hearts of his people. That's a, a, an amazing mystery. That's an amazing thing that was once, some people knew it was going to happen. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But now it's been revealed for all people that Christ is, is indwelling. Christ is in his people. And, and it's a good thing too. Because we are weak and we are frail and we struggle and the world around us is often working against us. So it is good news. It is glorious news that Christ is in us. It is the only way that we can be presented mature in him. And ultimately, the only way that we can see glorification. This word glory we like to throw around. And a lot of times we just mean like really bright and shiny. But, but glory in scripture, if you, if you study how it's used throughout the Bible, we see that glory is God's presence and power made manifest. Do you want to know what it looks like when God shows up? That's glory. And we have a hope of that glory. We have a hope to see that glory, that we will be made like him, but also that we will be with him, that we will get to see his power fully realized. All that is wrong, all that is bad, all that is working against him shall be cast down and his presence and power will be fully realized and we will be present with him. We are stewards of this amazing news, this mystery that is so beautiful and it's so magnificent, and we are, as, as Paul says elsewhere, just jars of clay holding this amazing treasure. We are weak and frail, but the treasure within, this good news that we have, is overwhelming and amazing and should drive us to be good gospel stewards. It's like any story. I, I recently read a couple of the Dune books, which, you know, if you if you know anything about science fiction, you're like, the Dune, that's old news, TJ. Like, they were, this whole series was completed before I was even born. And, and I read them, and I was like, wow, these books are amazing. And people who had read them before were like, yeah, they are. We, we could have told you that. It's, it's that kind of thing. This is amazing news. Just because it's amazing to me for the first time doesn't mean it hasn't been amazing for a while. But you can, tell, you can bet whenever someone's like, hey, what books have you been reading? I'm like, oh, let me tell you about this one. And that's what we're doing here as we see the glory 
of Christ in us. We're moved to share. So what's your motivation? Why are you pursuing the things you're pursuing? You can be pursuing things that are wrong for good motivations, good motivations, or you can be pursuing things that are right for bad motivations. What's your motivation for pursuing ministry, this, this gospel stewardship? Is it the reward you're going to get? Well, if I do these things, then I'll get that sweet, sweet heaven where, where everything's great. Is it duty? Do you listen to the parable of the prodigal son and be like, that older brother, he's got some good points. Is it because you don't know anything else? This is all you've known? Or is it the majesty of this mystery, this gospel of Christ in us, the hope of glory? So we have the, the work of gospel stewardship, and we have the, the devotion, the motivation for it. What does it actually look like in practice to minister, to be a good gospel steward? There's a couple hints here in this passage. Paul says that this is why he toils, struggling. We don't want to hear that, <laughs> that there's some effort involved. It's not, it's not an earning of the salvation. The salvation's come, but Paul's saying, now that I have this, I am exerting some effort. And you read the story of Paul in Acts, and you're like, man, all these missionary journeys and all the, the difficulties that he's faced, Paul is toiling and struggling. And sometimes we're surprised that God calls us to things. We think, well, I thought it's faith alone, and it is faith alone for salvation, but that faith should turn us to minister, to take this good news and do something with it, which often requires effort. But more significantly, I think, you see here that Paul is talking about suffering. And that's something we, we don't want to hear about effort. We really don't want to hear about suffering. Paul even says he rejoices in his sufferings. It's not just an endurance. And Paul, Paul is saying, it's not that just, oh, yeah, I have to suffer because that's my lot in life, but I, I can deal with it. He was rejoicing in his suffering. God wants so much more for us than just to endure. Many, many, many of the Christians we read about in the New Testament and in the early church suffered, but they rejoice. And why do we sometimes assume we can do it a little differently? We're, we're built different. We're not like those early Christians who first saw Christ. Jesus himself said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself and take up this, this torture device of oppression and punishment and, and carry it and follow him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And we've got this weird phrase here where where Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
And this seems, we read this and like, Paul, that's a, that's a, little, that's a little heretical, Paul. <laughs> Christ's afflictions were, were, were perfect. They were accomplished. He even said on the cross, it is finished. And that is, that is a fair point. It seems a little strange. But a couple things to keep in mind. The word for afflictions here is never used of the atonement on the cross. But also, Christ was afflicted in more than just the cross at Calvary. Christ was afflicted from the moment he entered creation when he took on flesh. Imagine the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who is only known eternal glory and majesty, being born as a baby in first century Israel. In a body that, that didn't work right perfectly all the time that was surrounded by a bunch of other people who not only their bodies didn't work right all the time, but sometimes they were actively against him, who had to endure temptation, not just endure temptation like you and I do, where we're tempted, we're tempted, we're tempted, we're tempted, and we give in. Okay. But he endured that temptation and never gave in. Christ's afflictions were more than just the cross, but also notice how he talks about it. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Jesus Christ so identifies with those who are in him, so identifies with his body, the church, that that Paul can accurately say, because the church is still afflicted, Christ is still afflicted. And until the church no longer suffers, there's more suffering that Christ will endure. That is a profound reality, that, that Jesus so identifies with you that when you suffer, he suffers. That his Holy Spirit cries out with words and groanings greater than we could ever do. As Calvin put it, as Christ suffered once in himself, so he now suffers every day in his members. Whatever suffering you're facing, Christ is there with you. Whatever affliction you're enduring, whether it's physical or emotional or societal or spiritual, Christ is with you. He is in you. But why can Paul rejoice in the midst of these things? What allows him the ability to say, yes, I'm suffering, but I rejoice, and to be so overwhelmed with this mystery? We see that there in verse 29, that he is struggling with all his, that is God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. That, That Paul recognizes for all his efforts, for all his toils, not only has God given Paul his energy, it's not just like he just gave him a shot of Holy Spirit power and said, all right, Paul, go do your thing. That, that God put his energy into Paul, but then he is also working his energy through Paul. At no point in this situation is Paul not enabled and, and indwelled and empowered and working alongside and being worked by God. He is not abandoned at any point. And so we see that ministry is this stewardship. 
taking something that is not ours, handling it well for the good of others. It's, it's a gift, which is freeing because it doesn't depend on us to get it, everything right perfectly. But also, it is a privilege. It's, it's not something that we own. It's not something that we control, which should be compelling that we do it well and seek to be faithful. It's kind of like <clears throat> a 1987 Toyota Corolla with a manual transmission, which is the first car that I ever got to drive by myself. And when I first got my license, the very next day, my parents were like, okay, you can drive to this thing you got to go to. And you can see they're like trembling by the door as I'm doing it. And I, as I'm in the car, I've taken tons of lessons. I've been certified by the state of South Carolina, whatever that means. And I'm in there and I'm like, okay, this is very, very exciting. I get to go and, and do this. But also I'm a little scared. This isn't my car. I don't know what I'm doing exactly. Ministry is like that. We've been compelled and freed to go and do this great thing. We should be cautious and aware that we have been called, that we don't own this. But, but we go with the blessing of God and not, not just the blessing, but the presence of Christ in us. Which should give us hope and suffering. Which should give us steadfastness. And which should give us joy that in all that we've called to, in all that we endure, in all that we're going through, Christ, the one who gave himself up for us, is in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this truth, this mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but has now been revealed to us, his saints, your saints, that it would be an encouragement, that it would be a, a hopeful and joyful invitation to us, that your Son is in us, the hope of glory. Father, I pray that we would take this encouragement and that we would proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we might be able to present ourselves, and all people mature in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.